Ladies and gentlemen, today we remember sadly one of the principal architects of India's freedom who is no more with us. The series of lectures which you will hear now were inaugurated in memory of Sardar Vallabhai Patel. The lectures commencing today are the third of the series. These lectures will generally be expositions of matters of contemporary interest by persons known for their contributions to thought or knowledge in any particular field. For this year's lectures, we enjoy the privilege of having Professor J.B.S. Haldane, who is a scientist with a worldwide reputation. He is particularly known for his courageous pursuit of scientific knowledge, in the course of which he has submitted himself to many risky experiments. He has now taken up permanent residence in this country, and we may regard it as a tribute to that great votary of truth and nonviolence and the father of the nation, Mahatma Gandhi. Sri K. Munshi, who has kindly agreed to take the chair on this occasion, will now address you, after which Professor Haldane will commence his lecture on the unity and the diversity of life. <coughs> Dr. Haldane and friends, I deem it a privilege to be associated with Sardar Patel Memorial Lectures on this occasion. And I welcome Dr. Haldane in our midst today. I'm very glad indeed that he has been able to accept our invitation to come and address us on a very interesting subject, unity and diversity. For if India has one message to give to the world, it is unity in diversity. And therefore, there's no more appropriate subject could have been found for this lecture today. As you know, Dr. Haldane one of the books of Dr. Haldane is titled Everything Has a History and so has Sardar Patel Memorial Lectures. You all know or knew Sardar Patel. And I take this occasion to pay my humble tribute to the memory of one of the greatest architects of India in the whole role of our history. It was given to me for several years to be closely associated with him personally, in public life, in social life. And when I look back to the work that he put forward as the organizer of the Congress, as the man who organized and built up the whole Congress organization in the country, the men who stood by Gandhiji as the stalwart, 
and then as the Iron Sardar who from 1947 within a short space of four years built up the India of today. I feel that in him we had one of the greatest men in history. I am not saying this is a matter of partiality but if we realize what Indian history was, what a story of disintegration, what a story of parochialism, what a story of regional ambitions make up the chapters of Indian history. It is remarkable how one man in that position could consolidate the country, weld all the different elements of this country together in a short time, swiftly, strongly and in a manner that left even the enemy his admirers. And on this occasion, I pay my humble tribute to him. To all know Dr. Haldin by reputation. is one of the most distinguished scientists in the world. Many are the fields in which he has achieved tremendous success. But more than that, he is a man of principle, men of, of determined convictions, men who have stood for his principle throughout life. And I do not know whether I should congratulate him or congratulate us that he has ultimately decided to settle amongst us. I am sure his presence in our midst will stimulate science, will stimulate research, and that he might be able to, let us hope that he might be able to build around him a set of students who will carry forward the great research work to which he has devoted his life. With these words, I will now invite Dr. Haldane to deliver his speech. The government of India has done me a very great honor in inviting me to deliver these lectures. I felt even further honored when I learned that my predecessors had been Raja Gopalachari and Krishnan. But worthy successors to them could certainly have been chosen from amongst my colleagues in this country. And I could, I believe, have given a better course of lectures after two or three years in India. By that time, I hope not only to know your plants and animals better than I do, but to have learned enough Sanskrit to make a more direct contact with some of the great minds of India's past than is possible through translations and summaries. Perhaps, too, I should have done better to lecture on the subjects on which I am carrying out research and teaching at the Indian Statistical Institute, namely genetics and statistics. If India had television, I could perhaps have shown you different breeds of cows, sheep, hens, 
rice, cotton, jute, and so on, and told you something of how the differences between them are inherited and what is their economic importance. I have decided to deal with a more general topic, both because I can speak of plants and animals which are very familiar to you, and because the question of unity and plurality has interested Indian thinkers for more than 2,000 years. And I believe that this subject is particularly appropriate to a series of lectures commemorating Sardar Vallabhai Patel. His most remarkable single achievement was, I believe, the unification of the princely states into the Indian Republic, a task which even India's best friends feared might prove impossible. What do I mean by the phrase, the diversity of life? I mean several different things. In the first place, there are many different sorts of living creatures. For example, cows, coels, rice plants, and people trees. We use the word species to de denote these different sorts, and there are more than a million of them, more than a million species. Secondly, each species consists of a great many members, and they are all a little different. <coughs> Thirdly, each one of these is made up of different parts, such as hair and bone, leaves and roots, and it can alter its behavior. For example, running at one time and eating at another, flowering at one time and fruiting at another. You all know these facts, but perhaps you may not have thought about them either very deeply or in relation to India. For example, I might ask you how many species of flowering plants are there in the world and how many of these are native to India. The answer, which I shall give you later, gives you some idea of India's wealth. Now, what do I mean by the unity of life? Roughly speaking, I mean that these diversities are much less real than they seem at first sight. First of all, the theory of evolution in which I believe <coughs> is that although a cow and a cobra, for example, look so different, 
they were descended from common ancestors. In this particular case, we can go further and say that the common ancestor lived at about the time when the British coal seams were being formed in the Carboniferous era, as geologists put it. Although the evidence is by no means so strong, there is evidence, some of which I shall put before you, that all living beings on our planet are descended from the same original ancestor. I need not tell you that Indian thinkers, in contrast to many, but not all, Europeans, have insisted on the kinship between men and animals and on the presence of mind, at least in some animals. A plant or animal possesses a certain unity. Is this imposed on it by a soul which is more or less independent of it? Or is it an expression of the behavior of its constituents, like the unity of a family or of a nation? Indian thinkers have asked the parallel question about the human mind and have given very different answers. Some Buddhist philosophers argued that the mind consisted of nothing but transient constituents. The Vaisheshika school, and please allow me to apologize for my mispronunciations of Sanskrit, the Vaisheshika school, I say, argued that the mind had an atomic unity, and so on. Closely related with this, this is, is the problem of individuality. <coughs> Both the Buddhist and Advaita darshanas, though in profound disagreement on other matters, have argued that ahankara is illusory. I shall take up this question on the biological rather than the mental level. Thirdly, we may speak of unities, such as the unity of a family of animals, including such very large families as an ant's nest. And here I shall have my one serious quarrel with traditional Indian thought. Your philosophers have used the, word, the phrase matsyanyaya, fish logic, for the view that men have no duties to others, that the strong are justified in devouring the weak, as it is claimed that fish do. I shall try to defend fish against this calumny, and to show you that some fish at least set an excellent example to human beings of fidelity to their husbands and wives and care of their children, that others have a social life, and so on. My first task, then, will be to say a little about the diversity 
of species and the evidence for their origin from common ancestors. We cannot give any sharp definition of a species. Roughly speaking, we mean a group of animals or plants differing in several characters from all other groups and without intermediates connecting them with another such group. In a few hundred cases, we can say that two species are separate because we find that their members rarely mate and if they do, give no hybrids or sterile hybrids like mules and some cultivated bananas. But of course, we only have this rather special knowledge in very few cases. Let us get a rough idea of the number of different species. The groups of animals most familiar to us are the mammals and the birds. The mammals, of course, are warm-blooded animals whose females suckle their young. Men, cows, dogs, rats, bats, whales, and so on, are mammals. There are about 10,000 species of mammals and 8,000 species of birds, and not many more are likely to be found. There are about 20,000 species of fish and fewer of reptiles and amphibians such as frogs, say 40,000 species of vertebrates altogether. On the other hand, there are about a million known species of insects, and of these, about 400,000, 40 lakhs, are beetles. Quite possibly, another million insect species remain to be described, though I suspect the number is less. There are perhaps half a million species of all other animals, for example, mollusks such as snails, worms, corals, protozoa, and so on. Let me give a very brief account <coughs> of the history of the vertebrates, the great group which includes ourselves, the birds, the fish, and so on. The earliest forms which have left fossils lived in water some 400 million years ago. They were somewhat like fish, but they had no paired fins and no lower jaws. Instead of eating like modern fish, they sucked in mud and filtered it through a series of holes on each side behind their mouths. The water and finer particles escaped through these holes. Though they had eyes, their life was not wholly unlike that of earthworms. A few of their descendants, living this kind of life, survived to this day. Now the filter had a supporting skeleton of cartilaginous bars. 
about 350 million years ago, or a little earlier. A joint developed in the first of these bars, and it became a pair of jaws. The animals could now eat larger objects, including, no doubt, the mollusks and crustaceans which live beside them. At about the same time, they developed paired fins and were able to swim much like modern fish. In a few tens of millions of years, there were very many different species of fish. Some had three or more pairs of fins, but only those with two pairs survived and became our ancestors and those of modern fish, birds, and four-legged animals. If the six-finned forms had been more successful, we might have wings and arms like an angel or several pairs of arms like a deva. During the Devonian period, about 320 million years ago, most geologists think that there were many shallow lagoons which dried up from time to time. Some of these fish could only survive if they could crawl out of pools which dried up. They developed jointed fins like those of the mud skipper which lives today on the coast of India. They also used their swim bladders to breathe air as the maghur and some other Indian fish do today. The jointed fins were transformed into stumpy legs and they began to eat land plants or insects. We have got fossils illustrating various steps in the transformation, notably the fossil of an animal with four short legs but a fish tail. These first four-footed animals were amphibians, shaped much like lizards, but like frogs today, they had to go back to the water to lay their eggs. Sometime in the Carboniferous period, 300 million years or so ago, some of these animals started laying closed eggs on land. Either two groups achieved this independently, or if not, they diverged very soon. One group, which later became the ancestors of mammals, were the biggest land animals for about 30 million years. Then they nearly died out, and for a hundred million years, the lizard-like and bird-like reptiles dominated the earth. Some were larger than elephants, others smaller than mice. Many walked or ran on their hind legs. Two groups took to the air. First, the pterosaurs with wings like bats, and later, the birds. One group took to burrowing, lost their legs, but later emerged again to become the snakes. Another group 
shut themselves up in armor and became tortoises. At least five groups went back to the sea, though they continued to breathe air. A hundred million years ago, there was perhaps a greater diversity of air-breathing vertebrates than there is today. The fish also evolved to forms more like the modern type. Then, about 80 million years ago, a surprising and so far quite unexplained event occurred. Over a period of 20 million years or so, most of the great reptilian groups died out <coughs> on land, sea, and in the air. Their places were taken by mammals, fish, and birds. At first, the mammals were not very diverse, but for 70 million years, they evolved in many different directions. As regards form, they have been less enterprising than the reptiles. None of them, in my opinion, are as strange as snakes or tortoises, though an extinct South American group <coughs> did shut themselves up in armor like tortoises. The most original group was perhaps the elephants, which five million years ago had spread over the whole world except Australia, Antarctica, and most islands. Three tragic events have reduced this wonderful diversity. About five million years ago, South America, which had been an island, was joined to North America, as it still is. Northern mammals conquered it and killed off most of the local forms some of which had been very beautiful. A million years or less ago, a series of ice ages desolated much of the world and killed off many species. Finally, men evolved and went through a phase of at least a quarter of a million years during which they lived mainly by hunting animals. Even though they domesticated a few species, they wiped out many others. The invention of firearms speeded up this process, and tropical Africa, which had been spared by the ice ages, was desolated by men. We are at last realizing that we have a duty to preserve what is left of this diversity and Indian governments are doing their best to save the lion and that much more interesting beast, the rhinoceros. I leave it to moralists or theologians to determine why we have this duty. I am only convinced that we have it. We see that the acquisition of new powers led to increases of diversity. But with the advent of men, this tendency was reversed. To a biologist, one human being is pretty like another. 
they differ greatly in their behavior and intelligence. And this introduces a new kind of diversity of which it is not for me to speak. The history of insects, particularly of the social insects, may prove even more interesting when we know it in as much detail as we now know that of the vertebrates. Why are the insects so vastly diversified? You will remember that there are a million or more insect species. I shall suggest just one reason, oh, there are certainly others. Insects have minds, in my opinion, and I shall try to show in the next lecture that some have fairly highly developed minds. But they have much more standardized behavior than mammals or birds. Western zoologists write of instinct. Perhaps Svadharma is as good a word for describing the fact that a species of insect may feed on a single species only of plants or animals. For example, there are three species of lice which feed only on men, and their behavior adapts them to feed on men alone. So very many species are needed to carry out these diverse behaviors. 210,000 or 2 lakhs of species of flowering plants are known. These include all the familiar plants except ferns and mosses. I doubt whether as many as 20,000 species remain undescribed. And it is interesting that about one-tenth of all these species this are to be found in India. States with much larger areas, such as the Soviet Union, have fewer species. The only state with a greater diversity of flowering plants than India is Brazil. Britain, for example, has only about 1,000 native species. Islamic and Christian scientists who believed that the world had been created less than 10,000 years ago naturally thought that each species was due to a separate act of creation. Ancient Indian thinkers put forward the notion of parinama, transformation, but the modern idea of evolution is rather different from this. It was first seriously developed by Lamarck in France, but Darwin first persuaded the majority of biologists of its truth. Though Darwin gave a rational explanation of how it had occurred, an explanation which I think is largely correct, one can accept evolution as a historical fact without believing that natural selection was the main evolutionary agency. Similarly, 
one can believe that Ajata Shastru defeated the Lichavis without believing either that he was helped by both Devas and Asuras or in Kosambi's recent Marxist explanation. There are two main lines of evidence for evolution. One is from fossils, the other from genetics. That is to say, the actual breeding of living plants and animals. The fossil record is very incomplete <coughs> for some simple reasons. The earliest rocks with adequately preserved fossils are about 55 crores of years old, though there are earlier fossils and life on Earth may be twice as old. Large tracts of the Earth's surface have no fossils. For example, the Deccan is largely made up of consolidated volcanic lava. Other tracts, such as most of the Ganges Basin, are covered with very recent deposits. There may be most interesting fossils in the rocks under Lucknow or Calcutta, but these rocks are a long way down. If all different ages in the last 500 million years were equally represented, the rocks formed in any particular million years would be found only on about a thousandth of the Earth's surface. In fact, some stretches of many million years are hardly represented at all, the older ones being usually rarest. Also, many animals and plants have no hard parts and are hardly ever represented as fossils, while others, such as insects, are much less likely to be preserved than are animals with shells or bones. In spite of this, we have enough layers of clay and rock deposited continuously and steadily over millions of years to show that some species changed slowly and steadily. The change being so great that if the forms living at different times were found alive today, they would certainly be assigned to different species. The best evidence of this kind is from mollusks, particularly the coiled sea mollusks called ammonites by biologists and saligram in India. For a few living animals, such as horses and elephants, we have enough fossils to be fairly sure of their ancestry for the last 50 million years or so. For others, such as men, the gaps are much greater, but there are plenty of skeletons with heads 
smaller than those of men, but larger than those of animals of the same body size and intermediate in other respects. Popular accounts of evolution are a little misleading for several reasons. One is that they do not emphasize its slowness. As you know, horses have very peculiar teeth adapted for grazing grasses which wear them away. As we look at the teeth of the ancestors of horses over the last 50 million years, we see that the oldest of these had short teeth like men or pigs and that the teeth gradually got longer. The average increase was only three or four percent per million years. In a wild animal population, about two-thirds of the tooth length are within five percent of the average. So we should have to go back about three million years in the past to find a population which did not greatly overlap the modern one as regards tooth length. Another fallacy is that evolution has generally been progressive, descendants being more complex in structure and behavior than their ancestors. I should think that for every case of progress in this sense, there had been 10 cases of regressive evolution. For example, birds, all the 8,000 species of birds living today are probably descended from one single species which first achieved flight. But many species of birds have lost the capacity for flight, the best known perhaps being the ostrich. <coughs> Similarly, many species of fish have taken to living in caves and lost their eyesight. Evolution has on the whole been progressive because a species which acquires a new capacity as the ancestor of the birds did, may give rise to many descendant species which exploit that capacity in different ways, while a species which loses a capacity is far less likely to do so. Fifty years ago, it was thought that the differences between different breeds of dogs poultry or peas, though striking, were superficial because they will all mate and give fertile hybrids while, for example, dogs and foxes will not. We have now been able to make barriers to interbreeding within a species and even to make new species, and rapid, though small, 
evolutionary changes have been observed. For example, the blackening of about 70 species of moth in the industrial areas of England. In one case, Kettlewell has shown conclusively that this change was brought about by natural selection, the agents of natural selection being birds which ate up the more conspicuous variety of moth. So most, though not all, zoologists believe that the differences between members of two different species are of the same kind as those between members of the same species, though there are many more of them. We have a fairly good history of the evolution of the vertebrates and a less complete one of that of the insects, the two most advanced groups of animals. The earliest vertebrates and insects, some 400 million years or so ago, were very simple creatures, not very unlike members of other groups. There is little doubt that all the living species of insects or of vertebrates are descended from one or a few species of that living at that time. As Professor M. R. Sani and others have pointed out, the animal avatars of Vishnu give a rough idea of the most advanced vertebrates at various times in the past. Repeating what I said a few minutes ago, 350 million years ago, the most complicated vertebrates were fish, 250 years ago reptiles, though the tortoises are well off the line of human ancestry. 60 million years ago, they were four-footed mammals, not so very unlike boars. 15 million years ago, they had some human characters, like Narasimha, and only a million years or so in the past, they were short, erect, dwarf species, much more like men than any monkeys, but not quite human. Just as the fish are the oldest group of vertebrates, locusts and similar animals are the oldest surviving order of winged insects. We know less about plant evolution, but the flowering plants are only about 150 million years ago, possibly rather less. And even the ferns, not much over 300 million. I give these dates with some confidence. For rocks can now be dated with fair accuracy by the products of radioactivity which have accumulated in them. However, many groups of sea animals, such as mollusks and echinoderms, that is to say sea urchins, starfish and the like, were in existence 500 million years ago and have not made very great progress since. What can we say about their origin?
three branches of biology confirm and supplement the history of evolution as revealed by fossils. One is comparative anatomy. The more like two animal species are in their anatomy, the more recent, as a general rule, is their latest common ancestry. For example, externally, a crocodile resembles a cow more than it resembles a bear. But the hearts and many other internal organs of birds and crocodiles are fairly similar, and in fact, their latest common ancestor lived about 200 million years ago, and the latest common ancestor of the cow and crocodile about 300 million years back. So we can use comparative anatomy to work out relationships where we have no fossils. To take an analogy, Hindi and Italian are only moderately similar, but their ancestors, Sanskrit and Latin, are much more so. No doubt, Sanskrit and Latin are descended from a common ancestor in the more remote past. If we had no records of past languages, it would be a hazardous guess that languages have evolved as we know they have. But given our knowledge of Sanskrit, Latin, Hebrew, and other ancient languages, we can confidently trace family relations between African languages and even reconstruct ancient ones to a slight extent, though there are no records of ancient languages in most of Africa. So we can be fairly sure that insects, centipedes, spiders, crabs, and barnacles had a common ancestor, <coughs> that snails, oysters, and cuttlefish had another, and so on. Comparative embryology tells us a similar story. The early stages of development of related animals are often remarkably alike. <coughs> so are those of animals which, with no obvious likeness when adult, for example, mollusks and annelids, the group of worms which includes earthworms and leeches. The simplest animals are single-celled ones. Most of these live in silent water and are harmless, but a few are parasites causing such serious diseases as malaria and amoebic dysentery. They are generally thought to be ancestral to many-celled animals. <coughs> the sponges, which are barely animals, represent probably one line of descent from them, and all other many-celled animals, another. The simplest many-celled animals are the sea lenterates, such as jellyfish and corals, and they have generally been thought to be primitive. However, a Yugoslav biologist called Hadji is putting forward the view 
that flatworms are primitive and coelenterates degenerate. Yugoslavia has produced many scientists, but those whom it has produced has not produced many scientists, I'm sorry, but those whom it has produced think for themselves, as do its politicians. Mohorovicic, from measures of the speed of propagation of earthquake shocks, produced a theory of the layers in the Earth's crust which is universally accepted. Milankovic has produced an astronomical theory of ice ages which has probably lost favor in the last 10 years, but still may be true. Zupancic's theory of hormone action has not met with much approval, but may also be true. 50 years hence, Hadji may be thought the greatest zoologist of his time, or he may be completely forgotten. Such questions will, I believe, be decided by the findings of a third branch of biology, namely comparative biochemistry. Animals which are alike in structure tend to be alike in their biochemistry. You know this, but perhaps you don't know that you know it. You probably take it for granted that vertebrate animals, so say animals with backbones like us and birds and fish, have red blood and other animals have not. In fact, a few Antarctic fish have transparent blood. And hemoglobin, the red blood pigment, is found in a few insects, snails and worms, and in a few plant roots. So the vertebral column is a better criterion for classification than red blood. But the color of blood is quite a good guide to relationship. We are just beginning to make similar observations on colorless substances. For example, an important, though secondary, source of energy for the contraction of vertebrate muscles is creatine phosphate. Among the invertebrates, this has been found in a worm-like animal, Balanoglossus, and in some echinoderms, but not elsewhere. This confirms the findings of comparative anatomy and embryology that these groups are related to the vertebrates. But the most surprising result of comparative biochemistry is the extraordinary likeness of the makeup of the living material in all plants and animals and of the chemical changes which go on in it. The parts of living organisms, which are perhaps best regarded as not living, such as bones, shells, wood, wood, tendons, vegetable fibers, and so on, are much more different. For example, human blood contains about one part in a thousand of a sugar called glucose, which is used by every organ in our body. It's found in the sap of many plants. Other plants contain cane sugar, a compound which is easily split into glucose and fructose, the sugar found in the sperm of mammals. The chemical processes yielding work are apparently 
the same in all living beings. Look at a bullock walking round, pumping water from a well and a palm tree beside it. The tree is pumping water too, though only at a speed of a few feet per hour. If it stopped, its leaves would very soon wither. The immediate source of energy for beast and tree alike is almost certainly a compound called adenosine triphosphate. This is also the source of light in fireflies. In fact, the most delicate test for adenosine triphosphate is to add water containing it to an extract of fireflies and watch for flashes through a microscope. The energy needed by bullock and palm alike to make fresh adenosine triphosphate is provided by a series of chemical reactions which only differ in minor details. J.C. bases the life, uh, belief in the fundamental unity of plant and animal life has been well vindicated. In fact, most of the vital processes in animal and plant cells are very nearly the same, though the cells are specialized to do very different functions and arrange themselves in very different forms. These similarities, and others of which I shall speak later, are readily explained if all living beings are descended from the same common ancestors. I have been asked to speak about the origin of life to weigh the alternative possibilities and state the evidence for them, however briefly, would take me another hour. I personally think that there is no sharp line between living and non-living matter. To show why I think so, there is no need to talk about viruses, such as those causing smallpox and influenza, which some think are alive while others do not. Think of an atom of carbon in a molecule of rice starch which you eat. When it is in your mouth or stomach, it is inside a living system, but hardly part of it. Even in your blood, it is not really incorporated into you. It is taken up by your liver, later passed through the blood to a muscle, and so on. It may be built into the contracting substance, and be part of it for some years, or it may unite with oxygen and pass away in your breath as carbon dioxide. No one can say just when it begins and when it ceases to be part of a living system, though there is no doubt that it is so for a certain time. Similarly, even if we knew much more than we do about the past, we might not be able to say just when certain kinds of matter became sufficiently organized to be called alive. There is very little free oxygen in the air of the other planets of our solar system, and the main source of it here is from the dissociation of carbon dioxide by plants with the help of sunlight. So probably the Earth's primitive atmosphere contained no free oxygen. If so, Many of the chemical compounds needed, both as energy sources and building materials, accumulated in air, water, and soil. They were gradually broken down again to stabler forms, 
whereas now they would be very quickly used up by plants and animals as food. Now systems which convert stored chemical energy into heat and movement often acquire some kind of organization which preserves their form for a certain time. The best known examples are flames. Also, some kinds of molecules attract others of the same kind to form organized aggregates such as crystals. The question whether these very primitive kinds of organization of material processes and objects were ever able to develop into the much more complex organization which we call life is not at present answerable with any certainty. I have recently discussed the matter in some detail, pointing out in particular scientific and mathematical questions which are answerable without too great difficulty and whose answer would at least tell for or against this theory. If it is rejected, two other hypotheses are compatible with the common ancestry of all living beings on this planet. One is that matter and life are both eternal, but life can only arise from life, and the first living being reached us from another star. The other, which Darwin suggested, is that life is due to a single creative act by a supernatural being, rather than many separate acts, as is the doctrine of many religions. I personally incline to the view that living beings arose on our earth by a natural process. A conference on this topic has recently been held at Moscow. It dealt largely with detailed facts about the chemistry of earth, sea and air, the synthesis of organic compounds by non-living agencies, and the workings of existing living beings which are relevant to the discussion. There is no doubt that men will try to make life. If this is possible, it may demand a technical and intellectual effort as much greater than that involved in launching the Sputnik as that effort exceeded the effort needed to make the first bow which would send an arrow for 50 yards.